0: This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, Lloyd Blankfein, the former Goldman Sachs head and legendary
2: risk manager in a
0: special interview.
2: I think the right thing to do is to kind of push in the direction of opening up the economy.
0: What coronavirus recovery could look like and how soon we can expect it.
2: Now some people express this as dollars versus health, but that's not fair. It's really health versus health because you know poverty. GDP is also
1: a health issue.
0: And Secretary of State Mike Pompeo on ending the pandemic, hopefully with China's help.
1: The question that the Chinese Communist Party has to help the world answer is how did this come to be? Where did it come from? How did it get in the wild? Where's patient zero?
0: It's Thursday, May 7th, 2020. SquawkPod begins right now. Good
3: morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. And let's take
0: Another week, and another 3 million Americans have filed for unemployment. The rolling total now sits at 33.5 million people out of work. It's alarming, and it's likely to grow, but maybe at a slower rate. This is the lowest the weekly number has been since mid-March, when the World Health Organization first declared the COVID-19 virus a pandemic. These statistics are just a day ahead of the Labor Department's monthly jobs report, which is expected to reveal another grim picture of the American workforce. Banker and president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis, Neil Kashkari, spoke on the Today Show this morning about just how dismal those upcoming unemployment numbers could be.
4: That bad report tomorrow is actually going to understate how bad the damage has been because that survey asked people, are you actively looking for work? And a lot of people who have just lost their jobs and were all sheltering in place they're not actively looking for work. So I think the number tomorrow will probably be something like 16 or 17%. I think the real number is probably around 23 or 24%. It's devastating.
0: Of course, you'll have to wait for tomorrow and tomorrow's Squawk Pod to find out if he's right. But this series of questions remain. How financially devastating will COVID be for the American people? Can we mitigate that damage by reopening our economy sooner? And what happens if reopening ends up making it worse? With those questions, we turn to Lloyd Blankfein, former Goldman Sachs CEO and famed risk manager. At the helm of Goldman from 2006 to 2018, he was called arguably the world's most influential financier. And though he retired and has remained mostly out of the limelight since, he has not at all lost his prominence. When Blankfein speaks, Wall Street and Main Street listen up, especially on Twitter. Lloyd Blankfein has about 146,000 followers who have seen his thoughts in recent weeks about the coronavirus, the economic impact, and where leaders should go from here. Here's Joe Kernan kicking off today's conversation with the former bank CEO.
4: I want to start by asking you, as a risk manager, one of the best, and I I really believe that, do you think the way we're approaching reopening the country, do you think that, that, uh, that this is a feasible way to do it in terms of both risk, uh, trying to minimize risk, but also trying to get the economy open again?
2: Um, I think we're, we're, we're experimenting here. You know, the states, you know, you know from the beginning of the, uh, the Federalist period, you know, the, the states were always had, um, uh, obviously we have a federal structure, states make their own rules. And when it was first talked about it, the states were supposed to be kind of laboratories. So states can do different things. And then, of course, the, the outcomes would be, would be noted and then uh, people would move towards the best practices. Um, I think it's, for me, um, the way, you know, wanting to value life and the way it's been juxtaposed between life versus economics, I'd be very, very reluctant to accede to anything. But I'm kind of, I think the right thing to do is to kind of push in the direction of opening up the economy. Now, some people express this as dollars versus health but that's not fair it's really health versus health because you know poverty gdp is also kind of, is also a health issue a uh, life expectancy goes down uh if there's uh you know if we have a bad economy if gdp drops by a lot i don't i wouldn't open up i would follow the cdc guidelines but i think the broad stroke let's shut everything down uh, is something that we, should, that, that we are pushing against now. And I think the tide is rising in that in general. And I wasn't as uh, critical as some of the states that were kind of leaning into that movement.
4: I think at the lows in the markets, you also you know, weren't quite as negative about the prospects for what, what, uh, what the future was going to hold. And, and I, I don't know if you're quite as surprised as a lot of people that the markets have recovered. Uh, at this point, and I'm trying to glean the, your thoughts through through some of the tweets you made okay. right at the time.
2: I, I think we're in. I, I think we're in the neighborhood. We're not. It's tough to forecast. I think we're in the in the realm of contingency planning. Um, Neil Kashkari, former Goldman Sachs alum, Neil Kashkari said, "We really don't know the damage that's been done because the unemployment number is st- understated because people aren't. Some people aren't looking for jobs, so they're not counted." I'm not sure that that's really what the damage is. We know we shut the economy down. The damage would be businesses that are shut forever, jobs that don't return. And we don't really know that. And we don't really know that from this unemployment number. I'm sure there's some correlation between the number of jobs lost now and the fact that fewer jobs will come back. But we really don't know. Uh, we really don't know that. And I think you know, we just have to, as a as a manager, I think you have to plan for Uh, a number of contingencies here. Generally at the depths, things are, look, an unresolved crisis is always horrible, is always bad because your mind extrapolates to new dimensions and they're all bad. Um, I think people, you know, generally, you know, just to, uh, you know, Warren Buffett says this, everything, I mean it, you know, Americans are are just very uh, resilient and flexible and people adapt, I'm not, believe me, in yep. my job, didn't allow me to be Pollyannish, uh, but I do think you you ignore history if you don't see that uh, that uh, you know we're quite adaptive. That said, there is undoubtedly damage being done, and uh, on a on a macro GDP level and also on a personal level, my heart goes out to yep. restaurant who built businesses and some of those businesses won't open again.
4: And you obviously were were right in the in the trenches of if, in 2008. You understand Fed action. You understand fiscal action. I'm going to read verbatim one of your tweets from April 9th to, to just set this up. Not all of the bold actions in support of jobs in the economy will go smoothly. And, of course, public health will determine outcomes. But Monday morning quarterbacks are going to have a field day. But in Mnuchin and Powell, we have the right folks on our economic issues at this critical time. So you figure... The Fed's moves all in, uh, I mean, really shock and awe type moves. And also some of the fiscal programs from Mnuchin et al. And, and Congress, these were, they, these were both, yes. you think there's merit in both of those programs?
2: I, I, think they behave, I think they acted terrifically. Undoubtedly, there's going to be a thousand Ph.D. dissertations that'll be written from Carol's and libraries somewhere when things are calm and everyone can reflect. And they'll find 50 things that they could have done better. But in the fog of war, heat of battle, uh, I think they acted uh, very quickly, courageously and largely correctly. And, I, and as somebody who used to run um, you know, a big enterprise with a lot of challenges and you know, a lot of our business was trying to predict the future, trying to position companies based upon uncertainties and where, the, where, where economies and industries were going to go. You know, it's hard to get this stuff right, but somebody has to be bold and make a move. And they made a move. And so if you want to sit there and say, uh, you know, you should have uh, gone a little bit left, 13 degrees to starboard or something like that, easy enough to do. But I'm telling you, I think those guys did very, very well. Not everything is going to has worked perfectly. Who would expect that it would? And, you know, you listen to some of the talking heads, you know, go at it. I think to myself, gosh, I'd like, you know, your knees would would be knocking to get if you were faced with uh, making those decisions at that moment. Right. Becky.
3: Hey, Lloyd, you mentioned just your previous job, what you used to do in terms of thinking through risk. You're one of the best risk assessors ever. What do you think about what you'd be doing right now if you were running that business still or another business, what you'd be doing just in terms of trying to make sure you survive this and make sure that you can handle anything that comes around the corner?
2: Uh, Sure. You know, the first thing you have to do, you know, you have to make sure, you know, your people are safe. You have to get your house in order. You You have to make sure you're up and running. It's like the, uh, You know, the steward on an airplane, you know, tells you to put your mask on first, then the mask on your kid, because what good does it do if you pass out then you're both gone? So you have to stabilize yourself. Uh, You have to communicate with your people. And I think one of the most important things to do uh, in a business like ours, which is service oriented and actually lives with other people's problems and tries to sort out their issues, because as advisors and as the other side of their transactions, um, you know, we have to, you know, we have to. You know, make sure that they're in uh, that they're in. um, You know, that, that we're communicating that we're communicating well with them, well with our clients, and work. You know, help them work through things. And one of the most important things is to make. You don't want all your people staring at the screen, wringing their hands with anxiety. You know, during the financial crisis, one of the things I said, and this applies to any crisis that we would be involved in, the best thing you could do is do your job, serve your clients. 2% 2% of the people in the company need to work on working through our own problems. If 100% of the people are standing there distressed, watching TV, watching the stock price go up and down, you're serving no interest. So, I say, so I'll tell you this. I will communicate with you regularly, tell you what's going on. The 98% of you just do your jobs, and 2% of us will sort out our own issues. So that's a that's a very important thing, and then get on the phones and engage with people. Try to anticipate what's going on. But the best way is, you know, put yourself at the coalface and try to help people through their problems.
4: One of the uh, one of the things that you, you're on record saying that has surprised you the most is that, despite the trillions of dollars that we're adding to, the balance that balance sheet to our budget deficit, investors, many foreign, still willing. To lend the U.S. a virtually yeah. limitless supply of dollars at six tenths of a percent for ten years—that's sure. gr- that's great and it's frightening, isn't it? Is it good it is. or bad? I well, mean, I was most,
1: well.
2: First of all, I you know before I tweeted out, I was afraid. I thought it might be unpatriotic to hit send because maybe they didn't notice uh, the fact that we are incurring <laughs> you know trillions and trillions of dollars worth of deficits on top of our trillions and trillions of, uh, of deficits. And I'm thinking to myself. In 10 years, you know, obviously we can always return dollars because we have a printing press. The question is, what are those dollars going to be worth in 10 years? That, you know, and so the fact that people will lend us, will lend our treasury dollars at 60 basis points for 10 years, I think is incredible. And by the way, that's very much owed to the fact that the dollar is a reserve currency. If people, if countries, other countries, by the way, more than half our debt is owned externally outside the, by people outside the united states central banks and other institutions um, but you know the fact that the dollar is a reserve currency um, and practically the only effective reserve currency at this point and countries have to keep their reserves in dollars so that they can make their payments down the road which means they have to invest it in instruments and that is a huge asset towards financing our deficit and i think we undervalue that and one of the things that i'm always conscious of We're not close to a tipping point that people will find a substitute for the dollar, but believe me, everybody in the world is trying. Every every uh, every sovereign in the world is trying to find a substitute, and is available. But uh, I wouldn't, uh, you know, in the back of my mind, as a you know running policy, there's not much you can do now because we obviously have to build up. You know, our deficits are going to grow given the exigencies that pertain now. But in the long run, we just really can't jeopardize that. and We have to act responsibly so people don't look at it and say, gee, I'm going to have my uh, I think I need to have, uh, you know, my reserves in renminbi uh, instead of dollars because they're behaving more responsible and it's a greater store of value in the long run. Lloyd,
5: here's where I want to go with you, uh, given given the conversation you're having before. I want to talk a little bit about what the other side of the pandemic may look like in terms of business and the reputation of business, because you lived through the bailouts of 2008 Um, you took money from the government. Uh, We can debate whether you were forced to or you had to or whatnot. But the bigger issue is how you think the public is going to look at this later and, to some degree, whether you think the goalposts have already moved insofar as when the PPP program, for example, was first announced, the idea was everybody take the money, go get the money. And then, of course, uh, a week later, there was a real shift in terms of, actually, let's return the money because we're going to get
2: tarred and we're going to get named and shamed. Look, I think people should be very, you know, big companies uh, should be very reluctant to take government money. Uh, It's a natural thing. I don't have any, you know, it kind of makes sense. In the moment you pass legislation, your focus is on let's get the economy up and running. And if there are inefficiencies, if it goes, some goes in the wrong direction, you say, oh my God, oh my gosh, let's, let's, let's know what we're talking. I want to get things up and running. We'll tolerate inefficiencies will tolerate the wrong some percentage going to the wrong people. Then as things cool off, as things get better, your focus, you, you no longer have the anxiety of the problem. And then, hmm, who to, who had it that shouldn't have had it? Who did we intend not to take it, but did take it? And it goes on and on. And I think over time, the goalposts will shift. It's, it's, na- it's kind of a natural phenomenon. I don't think it's bad behavior on the part of the government. But it's going to happen uh, that people are going you know, to be winners and losers in this. Well, maybe there'll be losers and bigger losers, and there'll be some resentments that emerge from this because some people will have gotten help and other people's similar situation won't happen. Those resentments will come to the fore. Right now they're repressed and de- uh, by the fact that, again, the exigencies of, of dealing with the crisis are taking precedence. But as things calm down, the focus will shift. So if you need right. it, Take it. But you really should need it. What what do you make of the
5: airline bailouts? And I I ask you because you you could compare those to the auto bailouts. You could compare them to the bank bailouts. Um, They're clearly intended to keep employees uh, employed. We're already hearing that the day that it ends, which is September 30th, many of the employees who are being kept on are likely to be fired. In fact, they're already making plans to do that. Um, In this case, we have not just saved employment for the period of uh, several months, but we have saved the shareholders of the
2: airlines. We've decided, for better or worse, that they are a special class. Well, that's one of the, again, that's one of the inefficiencies of the situation. And and we're not doing that because we favor those shareholders. We feel we are doing that because somehow um, air travel is integral, in some cases, you might say strategic to the health of the overall economy, and that's why we're doing it. And sometimes you have collateral damage and sometimes you have collateral help. Uh, and that's what I'm saying before, when the exigency and the and the and the and the anxiety over the collapse of an important industry, again important not just because it generates revenue, but important to functioning of other industries in the country, when right. that anxiety dissipates, the full weight of the country is gonna turn on the people who are beneficiaries, and that's why the goalposts ultimately will move. Uh, And it's again, it's a natural phenomenon, uh, but people should be aware of it going in. But then they had very real need. And I think, you know, they're doing it because they had no choice. And, you know, that's a screening process, too.
5: What do you think about the danger and risk to municipalities, to cities and to certain states, uh, given uh, the lack of of revenue that's going to come in and and what's going to happen long term in terms of taxes, uh, individual taxes, corporate taxes, I mean, how does how does a city or a state like New York City get back on its feet when this? Well, is all it's over? going to go
2: up. I understand the uh, again the re, you know the schism between the Republicans and the Democrats. The Republicans don't want to bail out cities and states for their prior profligacy and their obligations, and so they don't want to they don't want to bail them out of pre you know pre existing uh, issues that the states uh, may have had and municipalities may have had. At the same time. You know, states and employees, you can regard them as companies with, you know, performing important services with real employees. If you want to save the jobs of restaurant workers, you certainly want to save police and fire workers. And, if they, and so I think what's going to, you know, the obvious compromise here is for uh, the federal government to distribute money to the states and municipalities, but make it very specific and targeted to save those muni- essential municipal job functions. Uh, and then somebody will come up with the obvious point that dollars are fungible to the extent they're paying for that it frees up money for other things. And, you know, we could obsess on this stuff. But just let's remember, we're fighting, you know, to use the metaphor, we're fighting a war here. And you can't uh, you know, you can't You know, worry about your uh, your your ship or your uh, tanks getting scratched in the process. You know, we have to do what we have to do. What do you think happens to corporate taxes?
5: You know, it's, it's, it's interesting because here we are at this moment where we've lowered corporate taxes and yet, we've created the the greatest insurance policy in the world, effectively for corporations.
2: I think we'll have to, um, you know, we'll have to get more revenue. And one of the one of the you know rhetorical matters will say, oh, you know, you companies have been helped in some cases by loans, in some cases by subsidies, in some cases by the federal action that allows your debt to be owned in a safer way, and therefore you have lower funding costs. And so. There'll be more revenue. The other side of that argument is saying, look, to the extent you raise taxes, it's going to be harder to raise GDP. You know, this is the supply side thing. And the real way of accomplishing, um, um, of fixing the deficit is to just allow the, co- to allow the economy to reflate and resurge faster than it otherwise would. Don't forget, the government is a partner in, all our, in, our, in our economic business. So they are now at this tax rate, they own 21 percent of somebody's profits used to be 35 percent, right. but they're partners and they should want these businesses to be stimulated to grow. That's a schism. But I think it's going to be unavoidable that, new re- that additional revenue has to be raised. And I think we should focus. One of the issues from the last crisis, we hadn't finished paying the price of that in terms of deficits and, and Federal Reserve balance sheet, et cetera. And I think uh, it made us you know, a little bit more vulnerable in, in trying to you know, buy our way out of this one manage our way out of this one. So right. I think uh, more revenue is in what the What do case. you think
5: the danger is to the banking system? You know, it, listening to Warren Buffett over the weekend, uh, he, he hinted at some worst case scenarios and discussed, you know, the issue, for example, of corporate uh, or commercial real estate or r- real estate writ large, which is to say that if we do have a real problem in this country, mortgages are not going to get paid. Rent is not going to get paid. And that's going to bubble back, as you might imagine, to the banking system. We're likely to see that in the energy sector where there's a lot of levered businesses that are connected back to the banking system. I know we're in a much stronger
2: position today, but as a risk manager, how do you think about that? Well, we're in a much stronger look. I have a very vivid imagination, so I can always extrapolate situations where, uh, you know, we get into, a, you know, just a horrible, uh, vicious spiral. But um, the banks, again, the banks had help in this. Um, you know, competition might have driven financial institutions to be more aggressive lenders, less capital, more leverage than they otherwise would be. I don't it's speculative now. I mean, I was you know, a lot of us were scarred in the financial crisis and so really didn't want to get back to that place. But it really wasn't our decision because uh, a lot of the rules that were passed and the way uh, the financial institutions uh, or key financial institutions were regulated required. Huge amounts of uh, of capital and huge amounts of capital subject to stress tests which had conditions that are like the conditions we 're seeing now in some cases in excess of it. so look, I can always imagine you know worse and worse and worse things, but there's a good reason why there's not a lot of pressure on the bank's own financial position right now because they 're very very well capitalized in fact, right now, I would guess that the banks are under a lot of pressure from the official sector to be more aggressive in lending and to help the economy. And it's the bankers who survived the financial crisis that are a little bit reluctant to, you know, take even three steps back to that bad place that they've been in a dozen years earlier.
5: Okay. Uh, Lloyd Blankfein, it's uh, a pleasure to spend time with you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it.
0: Next on Squawk Pod, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo on COVID-19's origins and working with China on ending the pandemic.
1: The intelligence community has conducted its analysis with the information that it has available. It it has said that this was not a man-made virus. I see no reason to dispute that.
0: We'll be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? This is QuackPod with Joe Kernan, Becky Quake, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Here's Joe.
4: Coronavirus infections worldwide stand at more than 3.7 million, more than 1.2 million of those in this country, the United States. And according to Johns Hopkins University, there have been close to 75,000 deaths in the U.S., by far the most of uh, any country in the world, if you believe the, the reported uh, deaths that, uh, that we're seeing, maybe specifically in China. Anyway, While much of the global focus remains on developing drugs to fight the virus, getting economies back on track, there's also a growing war of words over how the disease first began to spread inside China. That's something our next guest has been very vocal about in recent days. Joining us now, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Secretary, it's great uh, to have you on, especially uh, today. And we're going to get very quickly to some of your recent uh, comments. But... Uh, The lead story in the journal, Mr. Secretary, the the virus is widening the rift between the U.S. uh, and China. And just for argument's sake, I just want to go back to something you said recently. Today, we're finally realizing the degree to which the Chinese Communist Party is truly hostile to the United States and our values. Do you remember saying that? Because it wasn't yesterday or last week. That was October. That was pre-virus. So we were already there, And I assume... In your view, things have deteriorated from there.
1: Well, Joe, good morning. Uh, the President Trump, in his campaign, singled out China as a challenge, a threat to the United States, something that we had to deal with. Uh, it's not political, it's not partisan. Uh, Republican administrations, Democrat administrations all ignored this rising challenge. Uh, the president's taken it on in, in multiple ways. We've seen it most publicly with respect to the trade uh, deals that he's been trying to get, fairness, reciprocity, making sure they don't steal our intellectual property, all the things that matter an enormous amount to the uh, economic well-being of the United States. And then, you know, we've seen now recently with this virus, we've seen precisely, this is a symptom, right? Uh, Authoritarian regimes uh, go to ground. They cover, they deceive, they put out disinformation, uh, they deny their people individual liberties, all the things that we've known for so long. We've we've dealt with communist regimes before. We're seeing it now again, and President Trump is working diligently to make sure we secure freedom for the american people and do the things we need to do with respect to china to make sure that this next century is one where america can continue to thrive
4: the the origin of the virus has been in uh, in the news for a while in fact we had senator tom cotton on weeks ago probably months I, i would even say and we had him on again recently and said that the evidence has increased as as you have said that maybe it originated uh, not, not perhaps designed by the chinese but in in a lab that wasn't maintained at the highest level of safety standards that uh, that you would hope in a p4 lab and that maybe it escaped but senator cotton emphasizes that that the evidence right now is circumstantial and probably will never be anything more than circumstantial so i'm just wondering whether you have something that's not circumstantial or whether it's helpful when all China is going to do is say that that's disinformation from you. And then we say, well, you know, when you say the U.S. military introduced it, that's disinformation from the Communist Party. And, and we're almost left with a he said, he said, uh, or, or, or however you want to phrase it. Is it productive if you don't have direct evidence to uh, to say that there is you know, a lot of it?
1: Joe, look, at you. You, you, you know this, Some, one man's direct is another man's circumstantial. Here, here's what we know for sure. Uh, we, we know for sure that this virus originated in Wuhan, China, and that the disease emanated around the world. The Chinese Communist Party covered this up. We have been working diligently and are working diligently today to get the Chinese Communist Party to help us identify patient zero, where this began, how this came to be. And this isn't about politics, this isn't about partisanship, this is about protecting Americans tomorrow. This is an ongoing crisis. Our, the world's epidemiologists still don't know the origins of this virus. The reason that we continue to ask for transparency and for a reliable partner in China is because it matters going forward. Joe, so not only do we have this current pandemic that's taking place, that we still have to figure out how to get therapeutics and get vaccines to market, all the things that we need, this information that only the Chinese Communist Party has in its possession. They're the only ones that can help the world resolve this today and for our American security. But we got to make sure this doesn't happen again. You made a reference to the absence of uh, high-quality standards inside of these labs. The Chinese Communist Party runs a bunch of labs inside of China. This is not the first time there's been a risk that the SARS virus, when it broke out, uh... there were leaks from their labs we we've we got to make sure that we get our arms around this not only for today but to protect the world going forward this is this is serious business i think the world can see the enormous economic uh... pain that has been inflicted on the globe and now quarter million lives uh, as reported i, I would i would argue the chinese numbers not worth the not worth the darn as you suggested mm-hmm. but quarter million lives destroyed as a result of what happened in wuhan and the chinese government has an obligation to help us figure out how to make sure there aren't increased lives lost as we move forward. Andrew has a question, Mr. Secretary.
5: Thank you, Joe. Uh, Mr. Secretary, um, in terms of the strategy of, of, of good morning to you, of, of raising the rhetoric and perhaps the tensions with China, one of the things, and we've talked about it on the show over the past two days, that some health care professionals, even people within the diplomatic community, uh, have mentioned is that right now, at least in this very moment, we are still very reliant on China for, access to PP and certain supplies that will be necessary for, for tests that we need right now and also for some of the drug development later in terms of supply chain. And so what do you think the risk is uh, towards raising some of these issues and raising some of the tension in terms of whether that's going to put any of those supplies at risk or at in jeopardy?
1: Well, I we do have an obligation to be truthful to the American people. This is what democracies do. We're not raising the rhetoric. We're simply trying to protect the world from a global pandemic by sharing what we know and asking the Chinese Communist Party to do what they say they want to do. They say they want to be a nation that participates in the global economy. They say they want to be cooperative. They say they love the World Health Organization. Well, then do, do the right thing. Share the information that you're required to under international health regulations with the World Health Organization. Do what you say you're gonna do. This isn't about rhetoric. We're not raising the rhetoric. We're trying to get the data set to save lives.
4: The the what we did initially with the, the first phase of the of the trade uh, negotiations, it, it was you know, it was taken positively because of the prospect for, for much more progress being made in subsequent negotiations, Mr. Secretary. Would you say that we still should be optimistic that anything can happen between these two countries with with the way the rift is is widening at this point based on the pandemic?
1: We're prepared to go work on these matters in good faith, just as the Trump administration has done for three years now, Joe. Uh, so uh, the answer to that will turn on the decisions that the Chinese Communist Party leadership makes. If they if they want to engage uh, in the world, if they want to protect property rights, if they want to conduct fair and reciprocal trade, if, if they're interested in that, which they tell us they are, then, yeah, I think there's a, a path forward to do that if they choose a different path, uh, if they choose a path where they continue to operate in the way they've operated for the last 25 years. Uh, President Trump's just going to say, nope, that doesn't work for the American people and the American worker, and we're going to head down a different path. It will be, it will ultimately be up to them about whether they want to conduct trade in a way that is consistent with global practices. Becky.
3: Secretary Pompeo, do you worry about the impact on, on tariffs, what, what that impact could potentially mean for businesses and consumers here in the United States at a time when we're, we're facing unprecedented losses of jobs?
1: I'm, I'm, I'm most concerned that uh, China do what's right for America's workers and employers. We, we've seen uh, we've seen unfair trade relationship for an awfully long time. President Trump has made a hallmark of this administration fixing that so we can get our uh, economy going, growing, doing the things that he promised he would do all along. It's what the trade team, Ambassador Lighthizer, Secretary Mnuchin, have been working on for a long time. Uh, I hope we can get it done in a way. The president has said he'd happy to have no tariffs, no barriers, no non-tariff barriers, free trade, reciprocal trade. That's what we're shooting for.
4: Uh, Mr. Secretary, just getting back quickly to, to, to the origin of the virus, uh, There, I was under the impression and Dr. Fauci has made some comments that it has been determined that maybe it uh, escaped from a lab, perhaps. but. Uh, that the the notion that it was designed or weaponized or created by the chinese has been taken off the table but some recent comments you had are are that even that you're not completely convinced that this wasn't actually made in a lab by the chinese what what can you add to that
1: Uh, i've seen some suggest that that's what i said they were aiming to confuse and try and create friction inside the united states government Uh, The fact is that the intelligence community has conducted its analysis with the information that it has available. It it has said that this was not a man-made virus. I see no reason to dispute that. The the question that the Chinese Communist Party has to help the world answer is how this come to be. Where did it come from? How did it get in the wild? Where's patient zero? All the things that free, freedom-loving nations that want to protect life around the world would share information on. We still don't have the virus sample, in spite of repeated requests for it. Uh, and we, we need it. The
4: uh, the the action of, of the Chinese when this happened in terms of you know certain doctors not being able to speak out and it, I mean it it doesn't necessarily mean that it wasn't uh, from the uh, from the wet markets I guess but some of the actions it would certainly raise questions for for how transparent everything was I, I think we got to go Andrew do you have a quick one for, for Mr Secretary or? I have a very quick one Mr Secretary which is this Yes sir. Um, In terms
5: of sharing information, but in in, in this instance also sharing drugs, uh, remdesivir, which uh, we're all thrilled and and hope is going to help so many people, uh, is going to be taken control of by the federal government in terms of its distribution. And the question becomes uh, how that's going to be prioritized. We all imagine this to be prioritized within the United States, but what the implications of that may be internationally as we become or are reliant on other countries in part to help us with supply chains of the drugs in the future.
1: Andrew, look, I, I hope when we get to each of these uh, opportunities, whether it's for therapeutics, things like remdesivir, all, all the opportunities that I'm confident we will we will generate, uh, we're, we're going to work hard to make sure that we get this every place that is needed, whether that's here in the United States or elsewhere. As the president said, we, we, we don't care who figures out how to solve this problem from an epidemiological standpoint. Uh, we want the whole world to resolve this crisis this uh, this health crisis
4: okay we, we uh, second that echo that uh, sentiment Mr. secretary thanks once again thank you thank you thank you all okay thanks
0: squawk pod will be right back people today can spend half their lives over fifty so it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older like a family vacation Jenny! That's Squawk Pod for today. Thank you for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern and subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you listen. We'll meet you back here tomorrow.
6: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery.